Right now, the regulatory landscape for what Kratom is, is a little murky, which has the, the big retailers saying, well, hold on a second. We're not quite ready to lean into that. Maybe you acquire a small coffee company and then you do ads for coffee, but you're collecting email. Is that something that you're thinking about? Love where your mind's at, Nick, 100%. When you're trying to get it into the system, use risk reversal. Say, look, here's what the data says. If it fails to do this, we'll make the differential and then you can throttle down any way you want if it fails. That was a light bulb moment for me. Well, in order to get there, there's all this crap that we got to get off your plate. Absolutely. Welcome to the Optimize Podcast, the only show that solves business challenges in real time. Join Nick Sonnenberg, a world-leading operational efficiency expert and marketing legend, Jay Abraham. Sit in on a new kind of conversation designed to help us answer the most difficult question of all. What am I not seeing? In this episode, we're going to find out how a prominent consumer goods brand can take its current success and break into the mainstream. Ryan Niddle is the CEO of Mint 45, a prominent energy brand in the Kratom industry. While Mint 45 has achieved impressive success, Ryan is facing some regulatory hurdles and scalability issues. To address these challenges, Ryan is seeking Jay and Nick's expertise to help Mint 45 expand into larger retailers, optimize paid media, and streamline their technology stack to increase efficiency. And before we get into the show, if you'd like to get in the hot seat, just head over to theoptimizedpodcast.com and apply today. Let's get into the episode with Nick, Jay, and our guest, Ryan Niddle. Today, we have an old friend of mine, Ryan Niddle. We've met and crossed paths at various conferences over the years, and I've always been really impressed by Ryan, and we've always had really interesting conversations. And Ryan has a really interesting company. And I think that we are going to be in for a treat. So Ryan, welcome to the show. (laughs) Nick, thanks for having me. Great to connect with you. Good to see you, Jay. Here's the way the show works. We are really here not to learn about kind of where you were born and, and all that type of jazz. We want to help you with one or two big problems that would be very valuable if we were to solve by the end of today's episode. And so we're going to rapid fire, ask a bazillion questions, eventually to come to some conclusion of something that you weren't thinking about. I know you're a really smart guy and think about a lot of things. Sometimes just having a sidekick uh, that thinks in a lateral different way, like Jay and I, can be helpful just to get you to think a bit differently. And, And the goal really is, how can we come up with one or two really good ideas? Sound good? Sounds great. So maybe what you could do to just kick this off, give us a bit of information. What is your business? How do you make money? What's your model? What's your biggest opportunity challenge? Jay, what else What else would be interesting to know up front? We want to know the market you serve, how you reach them and source your business. Absolutely. No problem at all. So business is a consumable good called MIT45. It's in the obscure counterculture space. It's a Kratom-based product. Kratom is this leaf that's regional to Southeast Asia. Right, So we import raw leaf material and extracted leaf material. We turn that into to finished goods, and we just use a combination of direct-to-consumer and, and B2B-based sales channels. If I look at our, our growth as far as the company, we did $5 million in 2019. We did $23 million in 2020. We did 40 some odd million in 2021. We 
just nicked under 70 million in 2022. And we're pacing right now for about 105 million with EBITDA consistently increasing throughout that time. That's extraordinary. What what do you attribute, Brian, that kind of doubling every year? What, what What's the driver? Really good question, Jay. So the driver to me in that is uh, really twofold. On one side, up until 2022, all of our revenue was generated from B2B. We were unable to get merchant processing to then go out and, and drive an e-com-based business. So if I look at 2022, one of the exponential multipliers for us was buying market share. Went to market, bought a competitor that had a landscape of direct-to-consumer. It's about $14 million in annualized revenue. So if I go back prior to that, it's going to be a combination of market awareness, right? Kratom is less than 3% of the U.S. population's ever heard of Kratom, knows what it is, how it works, what it does. And what is it? It's an alternative to marijuana? It's actually not. So it's, it's in the coffee family. You can't smoke it. It's got a very low melt point to it. If you take a little bit of it, it's been said you, you get a little bit of an energetic boost, some mental clarity, some focus. If you take a lot of it, okay. it's more of a relaxed, sedative type feel. It's powders, capsules, and then tinctures across the board. So think of CBD almost, Nick, if we go back you know, six, seven years ago. Is it uh, expensive in all these forms? Do you sell it for quite a lot? So we, we do have good, good margin on the, on the product. So our main driver is a, is a 15 milliliter tincture bottle that retails for $20.99. And we sell it at the lowest, lowest price point at $7.50 to, to select distributors. And what's your price to, to what's your um, cost? Our net margins are very, very healthy. Our balance sheet's strong, all equities in house. Really, really good question. So Ryan, are you the big player in the field? Jay, we go back and forth. The, the data is a little sparse in our industry right now. So we're somewhere between number three and number two at most points. So yes, we're one of the larger players. We, we distribute roughly 700,000 bottles a month of our main product. And uh, it's, it's consistently growing. And the B2B, who's, who's the, what's the generic type of B that you're selling it to? The generic type of uh, a B2B person that we're selling. So 7-Eleven, so smoke shops, gas stations, convenience stores, 7-Eleven, Circle K, Maverick is, is really those direct retailers are great partners of ours. All right. And what about would, would the, uh, a uh, Whole Foods wouldn't buy it? Right now, the regulatory landscape for what Kratom is, is a little murky. It's deemed what's referred to as a new food in commerce right now, which has it so we can't make structural claims. We can't say too much about what it does, which has the, the, some of the big retailers saying, well, hold on a second, until it's either deemed a food or deemed a supplement, we're not quite ready to, to lean into that, which has us starting to consider a new brand, which instead of this being exclusively Kratom in this, this small bottle, is having Kratom be an ingredient on a larger deck of products. Because Kratom, again, in very, very small markets or very small amounts is a really healthy alternative to caffeine. That's so interesting. And is there an ever compounding awareness too that's driving your your explosive growth? That's that's certainly some of it, right? And it's the awareness, not only the consumer side, right? Someone walking into 7-Eleven or, or Circle K, but then also the distributors are seeing the net margin that they can make from, from having our product, right? They're buying it for $7.50. They're selling it for $11. So their margins are healthy. And then, you know, the retailers keystoning it. So they're, ha they're, they're happy as well. I love that all the way through. So I'm curious, and this is a little bit protracted, how did you build the distribution? That's pretty remarkable in getting it into all those convenience stores. I'm asking a duality question, and would they sell it right on the, on the counter or is it somewhere on the shelf? 
So it's on the counter, right? We we believe that an 18 or older product is safest for the marketplace. So it's it's at the counter or just behind, think in the same same general location, perhaps as a tobacco-based product. Right. And Jay, how we got there, at best I can call it guerrilla marketing, right? Where trade shows of commerce across the board do the right thing by a handful of people that introduce you to others because they don't have the, the large distribution footprint. We then took the the country broken into six specific regions, which have distributors that that really handle those sp- six specific regions in addition to the national retailers. And that's allowed for consistent increase in, in market awareness. And in the consumer business, you, you've grown dramatically through this acquisition, or did you have a big consumer business evolving before you acquired it? We did not. So it's been, that is certainly an area of exponential growth possibilities for us is getting Mid 45, which is right our main driver, the company that we acquired is a is a sister brand now called Golden Monk Kratom, and Golden Monk has incredible numbers to share. Right, roughly a million two a month in revenue, ninety percent monthly reorder rate without continuity associated with it. Wow! The AOV is consistently between eighty five and eighty seven dollars. No refunds, no chargebacks. Really, really clean business model. Have you tested subscription models before? We're starting to, to test subscription models across the board. But what we're, what's been fascinating is right on the subscription model, we're giving people the opportunity to sign up for a subscription without a discount because we're playing that back and forth of, right, for people to jump into the subscription, now they're almost preconditioned to a 10% or something discount. And I'm not able to get that AOV to increase with that. So we're playing around with different shopping carts and different bump cells versus the continuity because our fall off rate from how I'm looking at it is our, our churn is not enough to justify we're not losing 12% customers per month. So to give some sort of discount to sign up for continuity really becomes interesting. And then you have two separate marketing teams, one for the B2B and one for the B2C? So right now we have one marketing team that is uh, fractionalized at best, right? Marketing is an area of opportunity for us internally, because to me, we really are, are looking at a branding component for B2B. Of course, marketing as well, but then also uh, needing that that direct response-based marketing group where we struggled a little bit, right? It's a little bit, it's certainly my background with previous experience, but the team hasn't caught up to that quite yet. Are you able, Ryan, to freely advertise on the platforms or is it problematic? It is problematic right now. So we can do some Google placement, Facebook, Instagram, absolutely not, right? We can play the cloak and dagger game, but we, we're positioning our company for an IPO or something, you know, a larger, a larger change of control event. So we don't, we don't want a red red tape floating around. So, but how did Golden Monk, how did, how did they get their, their million and a half dollars a month? So we've done a very good job. Golden Monk does it through SEO, right? So we've got a really stronghold, a really good stronghold on SEO. Have a really good SEO team versus the, you know, the traditional media buying team. Got some really, really solid SEO players and some, some great external SEO partners as well. But of course, I think we could all agree it takes a long time to build that up. Golden Monk had been around for three years before they hit that inflection point, And we hadn't been pushing it that hard inside of MIT 45. So we're doing it without competing on the same keywords. But it's just not, it's not rapid, right? It's, 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 it's a slow burn to get to that point. Is there any data on the consumers buying it at retail as far as is the repeat? I mean, I don't know how you'd correlate if you're getting a 90% repurchase at B2C. It would seem like that would be such a a huge market to expand Jesus with that kind of, with that kind of, uh, uh, it's just amazing. What's the average time period of the repurchase though? Because 
you know, is it exactly 30 days or is it on average 36 days or 38 days to get that repurchase? If your goal is to IPO, I mean, clearly the valuation of your company is going to be 10x or whatever the multiplier increase is going to be on on recurring revenue. So even if even if it's exactly 30 days that they're renewing, if your goal is just to sell, you still probably are better better off doing subscription, no, uh, with your goal of of having an exit. We, we certainly might be, and oddly enough, the data right now is supporting a 27 day reorder cycle for clients. <laughs> so it's even quicker than the than 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 doing a monthly. So they're they're getting the equivalent of 13 purchases a year. We're making the assumption subscriptions need to be 30 days. You could have a buy you could, you have a biweekly subscription, right? Or you know what quantities are they buying every you know 27 days? Maybe maybe in a monthly subscription you could have a larger average order size. Agree. That's a very good point. Yeah, if you could get them to consume more and it was safe and, and healthy more every day, then you could justify, uh, even if you gave them a better, a better relative price per ounce or capsule for a larger purchase, you could do that. Yes. What's the state of your data to be able to, to know that you know, so precisely? You have your payment processor feeding everything into some backend database that's really well structured, and you're able to have, I guess, at the size that you're at, that's probably something that you've invested and solved, I'm guessing. It's always in the process of getting better, right? I'm a mechanical engineer by field of study, so I, I can't help but look at the numbers consistently. And so, Azure database powered with Microsoft Power BI, every business analytic tool that, that we have from supply chain to inventory stocking levels to, to conversions per platform is all pretty, pretty readily available. Yeah, I remember when we met, actually, now, now you're jogging my memory. Because I'm, I'm an engineer by background too, so I remember that, that we had that in common. This might be a stupid question, but... Well, actually, before the stupid question, let me ask some non-stupid questions. What's the split of revenue between the B2B and the, and the B2C um, side of things? Yeah, another really good question. So this, this year we're trending for... It, it's 80-20. 80% of our revenue is a, a B2B component. 20% is B2C. So you have 80%. What's the revenue concentration? What's the concentration risk you have of that 80%? Is is all that coming, is most of that 80% coming from 7-Eleven? I mean, I'm just trying to assess kind of the risk that you're sitting on. If 7-Eleven were to say, sorry, no more, does your 100 million a year revenue go to 30 million a year overnight? It doesn't. So we, we've we've throttled the business intentionally, right? We've construct we we put a constraint on on available product because we don't want any one customer to be more than fifteen percent of revenue at any given point. And there's some there's some ebb and flow to this. Of course, it's not it's not exactly fifteen percent. Some months it, it goes up to twenty percent, but there's there's not a tremendous amount of risk. And then you really break down that eighty percent, Nick. And what we end up seeing is. Out of that 80%, 60% is coming from lar- our largest clients, right? Our, our 12 largest clients. And the rest go either a, a regional distributor, someone smaller, or direct relationships to smoke shops, independent gas stations, independent convenience stores across the country. So we're really trying to diversify for that exact reason. So I stepped into this business as a consultant in 2019. And it was, again, $5 million a year and no controls, no systems, no data, no anything. So they hired you as a consultant, then you took over the company? They did. And I did. Yes. <laughs> Jay, it's like your model. I love it. Did you just see the upside and they didn't? 
Yes. So I I call them and and maybe like many people, accidental entrepreneurs, right? They came up with a good idea. They've been at it for eight years. They were hitting that metaphorical glass ceiling. They were burnout working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. They, they had never grown and scaled a business to, you know, high eight, low nine figures before. And so I came in and originally was brought in just to help them buy back a little bit of time, right? With very basic systems and processes, right? What's your meeting cadence? You know, what's your project management system? Not anywhere near the sophistication that, that you would bring to the table, Nick. Just really, really basic stuff. It was really profound. There were all types of things I could unpack with that. What was like the biggest thing that you saw that they didn't see? The biggest thing originally that I saw was our overall, I'll call it sales process at a very high level. The sales professionals would take an order, walk it back on a sheet of paper to the warehouse to fulfill the order. And if the warehouse remembered, they'd bring the order to, to accounting. And so I'm sitting there saying, boy, this is really backwards. Is this very interesting? Why are you doing it this way? They explain it to the best of their ability. We reversed that. Then I asked what the accounts receivable balance is. Nobody could tell me. They hadn't, they hadn't tracked it. And you know, come to find out, we had about 2.2 million in accounts receivable. We didn't have for credit terms back then. And it was like, boom, all of a sudden now I have more free cash flow. I can buy down cost of goods. I can go after some marketing channels. I can bolster up the sales staff. So do you call yourself a Cradium company? Or is there a possibility... To expand, I mean, obviously, being very niche is, is great. But with the gray area that you're in, in terms of that market, would it benefit you? Or I'm sure you've thought about this. Like, what if you were to expand and not be a Cradium company, but you are a, I don't know, mental, I don't know, supplement, mental health, whatever you want to call it, where you're not on the gray area. Maybe you acquire a small coffee company and then you do ads to your coffee company or to a website that's selling coffee and the ad is for coffee, but you're collecting email and now you can do whatever you want with the, with the emails. Is that something that you're thinking about? It's something that we're thinking about. You just, that was a light bulb moment for me is, is that acquisition model. So I'm building out, I'll call it a sister company, a second sister that is a nutritional supplement company that focuses on mental cognition, right? Advanced memory recall. And then you do ads to that. And then they hit the website, you collect the email and... Absolutely. Yeah. So our first product in that is going to launch May, May 12th um, at FitCon, a market, an event here in Salt Lake City, Utah, in that moment of time. And then it, then it goes a little more mass market right after that. Yeah. The idea of a Trojan horse uh, is, is really interesting. So 80% comes from B2B, but where's your profit come from? Is it, is it the opposite? It's not right now. Right. I mean, we, we, could, we could make the argument that it is. And, and Jay, so much of this, 14 million or so is coming from Golden Monk. Golden Monk has a smaller net income margin, right? The AOV in Golden Monk is $87 and our cost of goods is, let's say, 40. What percent of your direct-to-consumer come from originally coming from the B2B side? You know, because even if you're not making as much of a profit margin on the 7-Eleven stuff, those people in the end do convert to a to see, you know, some percentage of them. Yes, that was a, that was a, a big hole that, that I found or we established as a company getting into Q1 this year, where we now finally have QR codes on our bottles so we can create a customer loyalty program. We have created a customer loyalty program where they, they're, they're getting free product, which now gives us the data on the backside of where they're buying, what, you know, IP addresses, all the fun stuff that we would know to look at, where we're just now starting to see that data start to come through so we can make some sort of correlation because it's been a, a very large blind spot for us. We haven't had a way to pool that data from B2B to convert into B2C. I didn't know that number. Let's get into the real, what you think are the big opportunities that you can't, haven't, aren't 
either accessing or you're accessing, but they're not delivering at the level you want or anything in between? What would they be and why? Yes, Jay. So one of the things that I'm seeing right now is if we look at the B2B component of our business, we're essentially starting to trade dollars across our product set where the order, the revenue number per customer is remaining rather stagnant. However, they're, they're moving from one product into four products. And so it's saying, okay, there's, there's at, a, at a macro level a way to increase AOV at that point, right? And come up with some new ideas that, that might, might enhance that. Because to me, right, I look at it and Jay, I might have actually learned this from you. There's only a handful of ways to grow a business as I look at it, right? Sell somebody more stuff, sell more people things or sell people things more frequently. So are they arbitrarily moving from the left pocket to the right just because they went fresh and they've never tested adding more SKUs and seeing what happens? Or is there, have they seen that adding more SKUs doesn't add more revenue? In my estimation, right, I can't quantify this. I think it's a twofold conversation. Fold number one is our sales professionals now are starting to to have better conversations where they're suggesting that we have additional SKUs to consider, right? This this little black bottle I'm holding up, this bottle of MIT 45 at one point was 80% of every revenue dollar that came through our front door. And I see that and I say, oh gosh, that, that's a that's a that's a big risk factor to me. I need to drive that lower while simultaneously increasing increasing revenue, right? Not just cut back. And so we, we rebranded, we, we, we streamlined our brand across the board. So it looked unified, we'll say like a Coca-Cola and started to see the sales guys then started to jump behind some of these products and saying, okay, now, now it fits. And I'm uncertain if they've had the sophistication, if you will, to understand you want to add things to an order, not change. I was trained most of my life that conjecture is a very hard sell irrefutable empirical-based documentation is much more compelling. It would seem that if you don't have it, you should make a deal with either some of the independents or a couple of of different size uh, market, urban, rural type 7-Eleven, where you have what you call test kitchens, where you can try your hypothesis, because if it's just conjecture-based saying, oh, we're tired of this, we're going to now sell this, but you can prove, hey, guys, how much yield are you getting per, you know, whether it's per inch square, whatever the denominator, if you add three of ours, you're going to get four times more than you're getting for everyone else, and here's the data to prove it, put it up there, try it for a month, if we don't deliver, we'll make good on the differential, and you can basically throttle down or something like that, right? Yes, Jay, I, I love that. And we've we've done something close to that. So fortunately, with dealing with 7-Eleven, Circle K's, Mavericks across the country, we have access now to Nielsen data, right? So Nielsen reports, we have that empirical data and we can show our product is the most profitable per square inch in your store. And that's that's helping us gain market share, but it's only one product. It's not for our entire brand. So what I'm hearing you say is, okay, let's let's do that. Let's, in, let's carve out a subset but as you so eloquently stated, create a test kitchen. I mean, whatever, whatever. I don't know what the, the, the makeups, but prove it. And then when you're trying to get it into the system, use risk reversal. Say, look, here's what the data says. We will guarantee in the first 30 or 60, and you test it the way we want. If it fails to do this, we'll make the differential. And then you can throttle down any way you want if it fails. I love that. Absolutely. Because, Jay, again, I think this came from our time together, perhaps in the training I was a part of. We actually created what we refer to as a dust-free guarantee. 
That's great. Yeah. And so it was 30 days. It doesn't sell. We'll buy it back. Plus we'll credit you the difference. Plus, plus, plus. This is even better. You're guaranteeing them a minimum yield for the space allocated. Yep. If you didn't have the gray area, would Facebook ads and, and, and paid ads, would that just 10x this business or, or double this business, do you think? I, I think 10x would be a conservative nature because I look at the L- LTV of a product and it's, of course. So a question for you, because we've just been making the assumption that this can be sold in the US, but what about other countries where you don't have this as a gray area? Are there other countries that you could establish an entity and start doing ads in those countries and, and not have to worry about that gray area factor? Love where your mind's at, Nick, 100%. So we're in the process right now of trademarking our brand in a couple foreign jurisdictions in which everything you're saying would be true and valid. So it's a trademark. It's the international entity building that mode around what we have just to it, over there. It's a little quicker to knock us, knock us off in some of these regions. Is this big in other countries right now? This, this product it is, you're going to look at uh, Dubai, right? Kind of the, the UAE, you're going to look at Indonesia, Thailand. That is so interesting. So they use it, Jay, there as more of an alcohol alternative, right? So it, it ends up being this, this opportunity to, to potentially drink enough to feel, feel a reprieve from reality in some capacity, much maybe perhaps like someone with alcohol. And so it, it meets all the criteria for them. Are you able to sell it on Amazon? Currently not able to sell it on Amazon. But if you were to do what you said before, where it's like an ingredient amongst other things, then it would be all right on Amazon? Yeah, so a competitor of ours, a, a great company, people we're friends with, have created a product called Feel Free that is Kava with Kratom involved in the Kava. And it's on Amazon. It, it's, it's everywhere. And so we can build a better mousetrap. We're in the process of building something that um, is just a superior product. Are they a big company? Uh, yes, they, they, and, and large, Jay, everybody to me in this space, and perhaps you guys have experienced it, everyone says their business is the biggest in the world, right? Where the numbers I'm sharing, we've had, you know, PCOB audits, we're, we're three years of audited financials, like our numbers are our numbers. And so when I ask other, some of our, our friends, what are they doing? Everybody's doing 100 million. I'm like, if people who buy Kava are people who would buy your product, maybe you get into the Kava business and you and you do it as a loss leader. Uh, yeah, yep. If the Kava is a commodity, you charge it, you, you lose $3 a pound or a package or whatever it is, because you don't care about that. You care about sourcing the buyer the first time, then they're yours. Yeah. And Jay, uh, if we, if we follow that, that train of thought, I love that. Wouldn't it then also hold true that we could reach out to other, you know, Kava retailers? You can underprice anybody if you know from experiment, if it doesn't, you stop it. But you can say, what else is a correlation? We're in that business, but we're not in that business to make a profit. We're in that business to generate leads. What you could also do is kind of the opposite of a subscription where you only let them buy it once and you could track if they come back to your website and you just put out of stock. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that might be the breakthrough, except with Amazon, you don't have the name. But if people buy tons of Kava on, you know, on search and everything else, and even you can put it, you can obviously stick it in the package, I would imagine, unless that's a no-no. It could be appropriate to send a sample. Yeah, I just mean an offer. I didn't mean a sample. I mean, as long as Amazon, if it's not in, I don't know what Amazon's rules are. They keep they keep the name, obviously, on the direct purchase. But if you can stick any offer inside the package so you can get a chance to get a direct purchase, if that's not unethical, 
I'm just saying if you find out that there's 10 products that more than anything else are going to basically, and, and we can get into a little bit about partnering in a minute uh, here, which could be just killer for you because there got to be a lot of people that sell product services that would have the same profile as the kind of buyer you've got. Have you done very much uh, survey or analysis? What else the people that are buying direct from you buy? I'm in the process of doing that now. So no, we, have, we haven't done anywhere near enough of that. I would do that. I would put that as an accelerant because Jesus, everything you find out is a, you know, is a significant. You're in that business tomorrow. Yes. And, and what about influencers? Like Dave, uh, Jay is very close, for example, with Dave Asprey. Is that the type of, is that the type of relationship where you get someone like him to start promoting it, getting a cut? It is. It is. That's, that's, that's the next frontier for us is that in, in that vein, Ben Greenfield has promoted, you know, a, a competitor of ours so that the biohacking space is familiar. And those influencers, we're, we're staffing that part up right now. Yeah, actually, I've seen Ben's ad for that. So do you have, Ryan, do you have a lot of, of partnerships with, uh, with, and you can call them influencers, but just let's call it individuals, entities, companies that are selling related type uh, people, related type products? We don't right now, Jay. I can give you a short course and then I'm not trying to hit you, but maybe there's an opportunity for us after that. But I mean, we've done billions of dollars. I just did a deal at Tony. Are you still, are you a plan or something with Tony? Yes. Yeah. Did you watch what we just did at the plat thing? I haven't yet. So I did something with Roland Frazier and I have a a book coming out that's called Creating Business Wealth Without Risk. And it's all about acquiring businesses rather than starting them. And we just did a deal. And the concept was he knows how to acquire them. I know how to blow them up. And we talked just about two or three things. And one of them was all the different ways you can do strategic alliances, partnering, you know, joint venture, co-branding, recommended uh, provider status, all these things. And if you've got that kind of 90% repurchase, which may or may not hold with markets, you could give a, a, an enormous front-end incentive or you could give corresponding ongoing revenue share or their choice or the best of all worlds. And you could just, and what happens, by the way, and this is what the coolest thing, I was explaining this to a client earlier. If you set up a ton, not just a few, but a ton of partnerships, JVs, whatever you want to call them, endorsed deals, you get three things out of them. If you do it right, it's not static like an affiliate program. You've got it ongoing. It becomes a regular monthly, quarterly deal. They do it to all their new people that come in. They give you a much more expanded sort of an integrated promotion, not just an email, but maybe a webinar, maybe a, 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 permanent, a permanent placement on the, on the landing page. Every time there's a new buyer, they get you know, they get at a certain deferred interval after they, they sell their normal product, your stuff. But what happens is you get their testimonial, video or written, and you put that on your website. They might have, let's call it hypothetically, 50,000 people that they reach, and they may do this integrated marketing you give them, Ryan. And then all of a sudden, let's say of the 50,000, you've got a thousand buyers over a couple of months. Well, that's only one part of the puzzle. The other 49,000 have been inculcated positively about you. So anywhere else they see it, including searching everything else, it just is a very powerful integrated strategy. And those kind of relationships are stealth. If you envelop the market, you could have one person 
get, you know, you pay somebody, I don't know, 10, 15, 12, 7, whatever you give them as a retainer against or a draw or a salary plus or against, that person could set up for you dozens. And as soon as that monetizes, then you have another, another, another. And all of a sudden, you've got this set of your advertising that you can't do. You got all these strategic alliances, partnerships, whatever you, that, that, that have two different advantages. One, they can drive enormous business for you. But secondly, which is, I think, the, the, the brilliance of it, now, if you do it right, you build a secondary distribution channel. You can put other people's products down or products you get control of the companies of. Little companies you can blow up without any marketing expense because you put them right down your distribution line. Love it. Thank you, Jack. Well, you're, you're saying something, again, so, so profound to me in this moment. When you're, when you're looking at those uh, subsidiary companies, as I made mention, our balance sheets, it's, it's pretty strong. So our ability to go out and acquire market share, we're pretty nimble. This can give you access that you can never get with paid ads if you're if you're prohibited. This can get you literally in a matter of six months. You can have the market enveloped, and and once you do some experiments, because you've got a certain you've got a certain repurchase based on an organic buyer, a search buyer. What you don't know is what kind of repurchase you're going to get from somebody that did more aggressive quasi endorsed advertising and it may be less but you need to know that so you know how much you can invest forward in allowable acquisition costs to incentivize the owner of the database absolutely and and jay if i if i recall your recommendation on that would be spend as much as you possibly can yeah make it ethically shameless but extract in exchange for that not just one static email you want to get an integration, you can say, okay, let's look at all the ways we can reach your market. We do emails, we can do a webinar, we can do, you know, a booklet, we can do, you know, whatever you would do. And, and you do everything and then you, you rinse and repeat. And then you say, okay, we're going to do this quarterly. We're going to do, we're, every time you get a new whatever, you're going to let them know after you sell your own three things and I'll be the fourth. And you set it up so where you, you, have, you have an integrated, perpetuated system for them, Ryan. Absolutely. But I just think it's it's a sleeper. It's amazing. And sometimes the smaller lists or the smaller databases or the smaller affinity groups are going to produce a lot more than some of these super large ones. And no one's going after them at the same level. You can go after authors. You can go after people selling. Again, all you need to do is say, okay, what else do they buy? I mean, if they buy Kava, do they buy CBD oil online? Do they, whatever it is. And there are a lot of things that people only sell one or two times and they don't get perpetual. Those people are going to be easy to partner with because they've already got a sunk cost in the relationship. The ongoing, then you do tests and say, if they go, well, I don't know that I want to divert our money. Then your, your, your conversation there is, well, let's test it. And if it, and if it, you know, it, if it's only a marginal amount more, We'll give you all that until we get to the fourth sale. It doesn't matter. It's, I mean, what people don't realize, and I get, I laugh about this, is if you say to somebody, hey, we're going to get you access to business you never would have had, assuming one, one factor, Ryan, and that is that you have a reasonable capacity to supply demand. If you don't, then what I'm going to say is problematic. If you do, incremental business that you never would have had, particularly if you get a lot of back end and then down the line, you figure out how to add other monetizations off of them. 
all you can get, whatever incremental profit it adds almost doesn't matter. Agree. Absolutely. Yes. And we're, we're fortunate, Jay, to, we have the capacity, right? I own manufacturing in-house and can scale that up and down uh, pretty seamlessly. I mean, it could be B2B that may be a different kind of a, a denominator, sort of an online B2B. I don't know what that would look like, but it could be interesting on that too. I haven't thought about it, but it's very fascinating. Continue, Nick. I'm sorry to talk to him. No, no, no. I, I had a feeling that you were going to be interested in, in this one, Jay. There's a lot of things that most people don't do where they do it very limited. They do it, you know, they'll do one, like somebody will go to a Ben Greenfield or Dave, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to give you an example, I was in the seminar business when Tony was in it. And now Tony's out. Uh, I, I don't do it anymore. But we did a quarter billion dollars, $250 million in the 80s and the early 90s. And I spent a, a whopping 300 grand up front. The rest was all performance because I had I had 40 newsletters I was partnered with. I had three magazines I was partnered with. I had five uh, direct selling uh, investment business book companies I was partnered with. I had three seminar companies I was partnered with. I had partners with seminar companies in Japan, China, Australia, and UK. And most people would do one thing and they would be content. And Jay, in those deals without being too forward, those just end up being revenue shares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were different deals. But like, for example, in the early days with Tony, it was great. I'll tell you the story because it's pretty interesting. So I, I helped Tony and I made him a lot of money. And then I got into the seminar business big and I asked him to endorse me to his list. And this was funny. It, it, it was He didn't mean this to be as funny, but he said, I won't give you anybody but the people I have nothing left to sell to, which of course were the best buyers, right? So he had 20,000 of those and they bought everything. And I had to pay for the mailing. It was before internet. I paid 10 grand and the first uh, thing we did brought in 9 million, but I gave everyone 9% of the gross, which was about 20% of the profit. And uh, some things we'd give, uh, I mean, we also, we had different deals. Some deals I'd give 100% of the front end if I saw it being a uh, you know, a sacrificial lamb for the back end. Some things I would give a front end against a lesser back end. Uh, you know, I had all kinds of models. I always was flexible, Ryan. My deal was what does it take for you to be unwilling not to do business with me? Ryan, let's, let's switch gears for a second and talk about operations. In your, in your intake, you had mentioned that you want to spend how can you spend 80% or more of your time focusing on your zone of genius? And what's holding you back is lack of process documentation, lack of proven sales process. You're wasting time finding information, miscommunication, duplication of efforts. Yes. So do you mind just to maybe expand a bit on that? Like, How big is your team? And where are some of these inefficiencies coming from? What's your tech stack? And let's just maybe spend 5-10 minutes jamming on that. Yeah, I would love to. So... Team size ebbs and flows uh, somewhere between 85 and 105 full-time employees based a lot of that off production. When I look at the C-suite... How much of that is the production? Yeah, like what's the kind of executive team and the, the people not in the manufacturing? Absolutely. So executive team, right? Uh, seven people on the executive team currently, right? Everything from general counsel to chief revenue officer, kind of the normal, normal structure for a company of our size and scope. And of course, they have the support staff that help them. Roughly, you know, 40 to 50 employees at a time, Nick. And well, that's not actually true right now. It's, it's 30 to 40 employees end up being production-based employees 
in some form or fashion, the rest end up being, you know, sales, marketing, or, or finance slash accounting. Gotcha. And so the lack of process documentation, miscommunication, duplication of efforts, how do you operate? What tools are you using and what's causing some of those? Yep, so we just went through a transition to move finally off of QuickBooks Enterprise onto Acumatica, right? A full ERP uh, solution. HubSpot inside of inside of the sales department for how that's that's running and playing. Asana for project management. Voxer for intracompany comms verbally. Transitioning from a fractionalized grouping into the Microsoft suite for scalability. I mean, we've, we're using Microsoft and Google in different capacities. So really saying, hey, we need to, we need to standardize where we're at. And quite frankly, uh, gentlemen, as, as we've continued to grow, what I've what I've found, unfortunately, is some of the team members that were with us at twenty million, they were they were you know they were gasping for air at forty million and, and weren't weren't there to make it. So we were losing a lot of that tribal knowledge across the board as as new new C suite members were coming in with their own ideas, their own you know their own thought processes across the board. And so we did a very poor job on process documentation, on systemization, on standardization, right? It was like it, it, as the rocket ship was taking off, we were really just white knuckling a little bit instead of saying, well, hold on a second. Let's bring another, to me, an employer or two or whatever you would recommend to really start to, to take these pieces and parts. We finally got set up with an intranet, right, to, to standardize things that way. We have process. What, what are you using for that SharePoint? Or are you using SharePoint for that? I'm drawing a blank right now, Nick. It'll come to me. It's not SharePoint. I do know that. That's that didn't hit a familiarity for me. Um, uh-huh. Have have process. There's Coda, as- Notion, Confluence. Mm, none of those. I know it's, well, it's process treat. Did, did you hear about process treat through me, or you found out about process treat elsewhere? I, I feel very comfortable giving you credit. There were there were multiple multiple divergence or convergence rather that were were intersecting at the same moment where. It's coming from a di- couple different sources at the same time. Okay. So you have an internet that... And look, I mean, it's very impressive the the amount that you have grown in a short period of time. I mean, it's hats off to you. Definitely, I, I guess you have not just goals around EBITDA and revenue, but also some operational efficiency goals. Well, absolutely, right? Operational efficiency allows for, for more net income margin to me, more time allocation. I mean, we go on and on about uh, those zones of genius that you're... That I'm looking forward to you sharing. Yeah. So, and uh, for email, are you using Outlook or Gmail? Right now, it's Gmail. We're in the pro by by really May first. We're gonna this weekend. We're switching everything over to 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 the Microsoft suite. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you should use Teams for internal communication, Outlook for your email. I don't the Voxer stuff. I don't. Maybe there's some use cases that you can find with Voxer, but you know, as much as possible. I would try to keep your internal communication in, inside of Microsoft Teams. For the duplication of effort, you know, if you're using Asana properly, I'm surprised. Maybe maybe there's some opportunities and we could talk also offline to see how you're using Asana. But if you're using Asana in a, in a robust way, there shouldn't be duplicate duplication of effort. Nick, I, I've, I've read, if, if, if you, you're listening, you see my cheeks, they're red right now. To say we're using Asana appropriately would, would, would be the most gross overstatement in the world, right? We have it. The marketing team yep. uses it across the company. We're not using it efficiently, right? We run a hybrid EOS gotcha. model slash OKR model. So some of the, we're, yep. we're even struggling right now to get the, the meeting notes put into Asana with scaling task and to-do lists after that. So a few things. Meetings, uh, you could you could definitely use Asana for that. But actually, we had another person on the on the podcast, the CEO of a tool called Fellow, fellowapp.com. Um, okay. His name is Aiden. 
And, you know, meetings are one of the biggest costs in companies. I mean, I'm guessing that you're probably spending, you know, a couple dozen hours a week on calls or Zoom, maybe even more. Yes, um, so, so making sure that you get the most out of, out of those calls is probably really critical. You should look at that for your agendas. You know, have you ever heard the phrase, no agenda, no attenda? Yes. Having an agenda tool, one, it makes sure that you accomplish what you're looking for. But two, a lot of the things of miscommunication or you know, not spending enough time in your unique ability, probably a lot of that is because you're getting over-notified in text, email, Voxer, all these things. So if you can change your company culture, that anything... Okay, no agenda, no attendo. That's maybe one rule. Another policy you might want to consider is if it's not urgent and it can wait till next week or when you have a future meeting, don't bother you in any of those tools. Add it to the agenda and then you could just batch go through those things. That alone has totally transformed our productivity at, at Leverage. And if I can tell that we're about to get into a conversation that potentially could have 30 back and forth pings, I just now stop add it to the agenda, and I don't go down those rabbit holes. And then how you use Asana is, is absolutely critical. You know, EOS is great. OKRs is great. You know, eventually you probably want to put your OKRs into Asana because you could track goals there. You know, if I could paint like a final, you know, future vision for you, you should be able to go into Asana, click a button and know how's everyone tracking on their OKRs. Click another button and know how's everyone tracking on their key projects. And there should be no duplication of effort anywhere. We, we have that right now, Nick, inside of a platform called Lattice. So our one-to-one yeah. -one meeting cadences, the OKRs, the trending, right? The, the feedback loops are inside of Lattice for us. Great. So I would just stick with Lattice for the OKR tracking. Are you doing that for performance reviews as well? We are. And, and net promoter score. Uh, employee net promoter score. Correct. Great. No, Lattice is a great tool. So if, if you're already doing that, that's fantastic. You know, I think still making sure that your team understands the purpose of all these tools and not just how, but when to use the tools is really important. What's some examples of the duplication of effort and what do you think caused it? To me, I track those things back to inefficient and effective communication, right? Where we yep. will we'll have that level 10 meeting, we'll call the all hands meeting, whatever you want to call it across the executive team. And the decisions just don't get logged properly? So the decisions get made and they get, I would say they get logged, but somewhere between we need to go chase this initiative over the next seven days. I would believe it to be we're not getting granular enough with the expectations, perhaps, because I'm I'm assuming, or knowing what assuming can make all of us, right? I'm, I'm assuming that there's an understanding of, okay, we're going to go launch a new product. And okay, launching a new product, it's it's branding, it's packaging, it's, you know, emails, it's social, right? It, it's, it, there's a logical cascade, but that logical cascade isn't happening in the fullest capacity, right? Because to me, I then go back to, well, what is our new product introduction process that's been documented? And are we checking those things off a list? And the answer right now has been no. It's been a little bit of, well, sure, we'll go run and do it. And then I come back, I'm like, well, this isn't good. That example, it sounds like anytime you're launching a product, it's more of a process. It sounds like you have in your head what the right way of doing that is. It sounds like you've got a lot of experience, you know, like you've got to think about branding and packaging and all these different, all these different things. So, you know, there's a distinction that your team needs to be aware of. of What's a process versus a project? And if you have a best practice that you've invested time and energy and money into, and you have intellectual property in the form of knowing the best way to launch a product or the best way to do something, that should belong in Process Street, not in Asana. And then you can just track, you know, did, did they follow their steps or not follow their steps? Asana should just be used for ad hoc things. Okay. 
brilliant. Thank you. And, you know, and, and back to your final goal of exiting, having an exit, aside from your valuation being a function of some of the other things we discussed, increasing revenue, recurring revenue, things like that. Having, you know, a turnkey business with SOPs and processes well-documented is going to just be another lever for you to be able to pull in that valuation. So although it doesn't directly increase revenue, you know, you know this, right? You're smiling. It, it, it's going to help you with your value. So some, some strategies that I've, this has to be part of culture. So if you make a decision or you figure out, okay, now the salesperson, when they're doing a call, they should say this when this happens. All of those things needs to get added to whatever your internal wiki is. You know, yep. there needs to be, you come up with a new way of launching a product. You, it needs to be part of the culture where not just you, cause you're going to get burnt out being like the, the one to always be telling people to do it. It needs to be, you have to figure out how to get this into the culture where everyone just knows to do it or they're telling each other. So you decentralize that. Cause if it's just sent, if it's just centralized around you, it's just too much pressure. You got other things to do too. So somehow you need to, you know, reset the direction of the company. Hey, we're going to be focused on efficiency going forward. Is it's going to be a core part of the initiatives. Part of that's going to be documentation. If you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. And so this isn't to punish you. It's we want to elevate all of you. And the best way for us to do that is all the all the crap that you're doing, all the lower level work. In order for us to be able to get that off your plate, hire more junior people to do it so you can do higher level work and add more value to the business and us be able to justify paying you more, we need to document that stuff so we can more easily onboard new people, right? Because you have to give them a bit of incentive too. It's not documenting knowledge isn't usually the most fun. And you could also use tools like Loom to screen record so people could start by screen recording stuff. And then you could hire... One key hire you might want to make is just a documenter. And their sole job is to sit next to people, watch what they're doing, watch video, and put make sure that the processes and the, the knowledge is properly captured. You'll probably find too that there's a lot of things that people are doing that you'll be surprised to find out that they're still doing. That was stuff that was from a year ago that you know shouldn't even be happening. Yes. Is that helpful? Very helpful. I mean, Nick, literally, it's there's such a profound nature of the way you you phrase, you know, if you you can't be replaced. You can't be promoted because I've been, I've been pushing some of these things from, from, from your book and, and some of the, the various time I've spent with, oh, thank with you. you in different capacities of, right. We have loom as a mainstay. We're, we're using that instead of using yeah. a process documenter by running through a transcription service, like Descript using that to then, you know, back it out through either to enhance it using AI or, or to document it and pass it back yep. around, maybe kick it to an external, you know, uh, potential VA to, to, create that process and hand it to somebody else see if they can complete it. It's just not happening quickly enough because the overall culture is a little bit of a fear-based culture at a moment of, hold on, if I document everything, I, I'm now replaceable. And that makes me nervous instead of, yes, when you document everything, you're, you're promotable. Most companies aren't using tools like Lattice or 15.5 for, for performance management. But I'm guessing that if you're using that tool, you're having conversations to know kind of what they're... Do you have conversations about what what their career trajectory is. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you, where in a year from now do you want to be? So as long as you're painting a clear vision, like, hey, Nick, you're doing this right now. In a year from now, where should you be? You know, what does success look like, right? And okay, well, in order to get there, there's all this crap that we got to get off your plate. Let's make, aside from the revenue goal you've got or aside from whatever job function they're in, a secondary goal is how do we get 
this other crap off your plate so that together we can work together and help you achieve that vision, which is going to be more intellectually stimulating and more pay. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Nick. I mean, right now I have a handful of people on my team that don't like what they're doing. And I said to them, look, let's work together to get you as quickly as possible out of this position. In order to do that, we need to one, hire someone, but two, you need to document what you've defined as best practices that you've proven to be the right way of doing this. And it needs to be really well documented. And you need to hire someone, lead the hiring process and give them your document, all the stuff that you've documented. And so when someone's not happy with something they're doing, I'm like, great, let's work together to get it off your plate. Those are the steps to get it off your plate. You lead the hiring process and you document all the stuff and train them up on what you've documented. Right. And it's not fear-based. It's, and if you do that, your job is going to be this. So it's kind of like a dangling carrot. Yes. I love that. Thank you, Nick. Yep. No problem. Thanks for reading the book. Of course. You think you'd send me, you'd send me a book and then I'd buy a couple of copies. I wouldn't read it. I'd just leave it on the, on the shelf <laughs> over in the corner. I mean, come on. <laughs> Jay, what are you thinking? Well, I've been thinking about retail for a minute. And I'm wondering... I've been trained in lots of different, uh, very interesting areas. And one is variability. And if you have uh, 7-Elevens and, and the equivalent, there must be, you know, hundreds, thousands of these, uh, of these stores that you're in. And I'm wondering what kind of variability you see in sales consumption and whether you've ever studied what, you know, what variables have driven more or less position you know, whether you've got a display box, whether, you know, any kind of factors, denominators that have either produced more or less. And if you've never studied that, I think you should. And then I'm going to wonder if it is doable, if you could do any kind of signage on the, on the glass, on the, in the store, anything that would be experimental to see if you could double uh, consumption, but I wonder if you studied any of those things, Ryan. So Jay, uh, lo- love where your mind's at. We took our five largest markets and hired an individual, uh, as many as two individuals per market to begin to do just that, right? Consistent ongoing market research of seeing placement, pricing, strategy. And we're beginning to now, I'll say test um, many of what you're sharing, right? Window decals, where's a position, taking the most successful stores and the markets that the throughput's the highest and really paying attention to what they're doing. But simultaneously, Jay, we've also seen that by having that there, the turns per month are increasing because there's this variance that's happening in which they're not reordering products at the right capacity. So we're seeing empty shelves simultaneously by having those presents there. And it's having me say, well, holy cow, I'd like to go out and buy a SaaS-based company so that I can help increase throughput by monitoring and tracking and automatically triggering events to send them more products when they're ready. I wonder how, how often that is the case. That's so interesting. But yeah, I mean, years and years and years ago, I was in the, the dry cleaning business. I didn't work for it. I didn't know it, but I was in it. And we did also something called suede and leather cleaning, which was very profitable. Same actual process that you'd use back then for a $3 sale you get 20 so it was very profitable and we were able to double redouble redouble again with signage with with package uh stuffers uh we would clip on to the the dry cleaning with spits all kinds of things and when we got it to a certain level we found that it sustained itself when people had more awareness but if you're playing a long game 
you can uh, you should study you know just all kinds of variables, and then when you think you have uh, some assumptions, then re-verify it again. And if it is, do whatever it takes to get the stores to do it at least for a test period. If you have to give them the lion's share of the upside for a month or so, it doesn't really matter if you're playing a perpetual game. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, wow. I have a really weird question that has nothing to do and everything to do. What did you do before you were brought on as a consultant? What's your background? I know you said you're an engineer, but between engineer and owning a uh, a very unique business, what did you do in between? Yeah, so day post-college, post uh, jumped into, of all things, automotive sales. So ran high-end luxury car dealerships for a period of time and scaled those. Jumped into a start. Jay likes cars. <laughs> right. So, what brands did you put brands? Uh, so the, the last store that I was general sales manager of was Ferrari Lamborghini. It was every European brand other than Mercedes-Benz under one roof. And of all places, Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. So you wouldn't really? think of it to be the master for cars, but it's a great dealership called Midwestern Auto Group. All right. And what do you drive right now? Uh, well, a, a couple different, a couple different vehicles, Jay. So, uh, McLaren 720S, a 911 Turbo S, a new full-size Range Rover, uh, P525, a 760 IL BMW. Uh, right, I'm, I'm a car guy, right? So, yeah. always I rotating it. in and out. I, I have, I have the uh, supercharger too. I like it a lot. It's, 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 it's great fun. But I have a lot of other cars as well. That's great. I love it. So then, after that, what you do? So got brought on as a, as a sales professional inside of a startup web hosting company and was the affiliate manager and learned this entire new industry, took over as president and CEO after seven or eight months, went through a couple capital raises, sold that to a subsidiary of GoDaddy, gosh, 11 years ago now, then fell flat on my face, started a high-risk merchant processing company, didn't know, really was pretty e- e- egoic and, and really didn't pay attention to the right variables. And so all the money from the exit was, was gone two years later, right? writing a big check to keep myself out of hot water, then created a custom clothing company, right? And, and took some of the tech from, from uh, the, the previous time of web hosting, developed an app that allowed me to take pictures of people, cross-reference measurements, shorten down the cash conversion cycle, partnered that up with a, a, a textile manufacturer out of Huddersfield, England, used that for an equity swap inside that world, grew that and then sold that company off, then started a CBD company in 2016, all direct to consumer, scaled that um, until December of 18. That was acquired by a, a private equity group out of Pittsburgh. Then sat back and said, "Okay, I've got a little breathing room. Let's consult for a second. Let's see what the next opportunity is." And then, right, have this company and a handful of, of different companies I have either ownership in, equity in, or, or sole proprietor. How did they find you? How did this company find you to hire you to consult? Social media, right? I was, I was, I had a podcast that that I was running at that point, coupled with sharing some things consistently on social media, not necessarily even for lead gen, just here's what I'm up to. Here's some things that are working. And of course, the, 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 the downstream was lead gen, but it wasn't one of those things of some offer and media buys. It was just, here's what I'm up to. Here's what's not working for certain. Here's what I found that's working. And they, they just reach out. At one point, I had 32 one-to-one consulting clients of, of different capacities and scales and scopes. And quality of life was very low, but Impact was high, revenue was high, income was high. And then just started to say, well, gosh, this is really foolish. I'm helping these companies grow and scale and some of them exit. Why don't I why don't I reverse this and start doing this for equity? That was kind of when I started paying attention to more of what, what Jay was up to or, or what he was sharing. And I'm like, gosh, there's a brilliant model built baked right in in front of me. Let me take some leverage off that. Let me take some some knowledge from that. So I started consulting for equity more and more. 
then went back to some of the individuals that I'd helped sell their business and said, I think I've got a formula for this. Would you guys want to invest if I create a, a private equity fund? If I, you know, got, went through the SEC accreditation, did it the right way, would you mind if I started a fund? Would you contribute? And so I have a, a 157 million assets under management in a, in a fund that I own or I, a general partner in, however you want to say it. You still have it? So I do. I do. And, and what's your portfolio? Uh, so right now it's all manufacturing. Radium. Yeah. So I mean, enough, Kratom is one thing that's not in, in the portfolio of all the things. So it's, it's so been, and, 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 and you live in uh, Salt Lake? I don't actually live in Columbus, Ohio, but the Kratom company is the main driver right now for so much of my time. So I fly back and forth, spend time in Salt Lake City. That is so This right? where manufacturing is based out that of. That is left. Okay, we have to talk. And so before we get off, give me your contact. That is so funny. You like the McLaren? I do, right? It, it's such an experience. I, the, the 911 Turbo S is, is more my daily driver. It's just so functional and have a, a GT3 RS coming in. The McLaren's great, but I, as funny as it sounds, being a car guy, I actually like being a little more in, indescript than that. And everywhere I go, people take pictures of it and want to hop in it. Yeah, and I love it that, right? It, it's exciting, I, but in the same aspect. I, yeah. Yeah, I, have, I have an NSX. I have a, a 2021 that a client gave me because I, I helped him. I, I have the the, the largest uh, Honda Acura dealer in, in the in the country, maybe in the world. And they gave me an NSX and it's so much fun and it's a daily driver. Yeah. I, unfortunately for me on my side, Jay, I've had to pay for mine versus versus earn it or have it given to me. But nonetheless, it's it's, it's great yeah. to be in good company. We, we were... We- I was there when he got it. We were on a clubhouse together and he, someone on clubhouse funny. asked a question and he got an NSX. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Ryan, we'll yeah. definitely continue the conversation, but was this helpful? If you could summarize maybe a couple of the ideas that you've gotten on today's show that you're going to go and implement, that would be interesting to hear. Yeah, I, w- I would love to. So this has been incredibly impactful. I've got four pages of notes so far that I've written. So some of the ones that I've circled <laughs> at, at the very high level, right in, in reverse order, Nick, it's it's the way of process documenting with you and, and that conversation around, you know, if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted, essentially, and then tying that carrot to the process as a, as a whole. Talk about... One other thing, Ryan, with that, before I forget, another thing you could do, which I got from being a high-frequency trader, is you could do role rotations. So you could force people and just make that part of your culture where, hey, once a year for a week, we're going to do a rotation. And you force people to do other people's jobs. And that's a way to enforce the documentation, but also stress test that things don't get stale. I love it. So that, that's that's another thing I'm going to implement, right? That makes so much sense to me okay, right. across the board. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm, to interrupt. All right. Well, what else did you write down? You're great, I think. Uh, what, what Jay was sharing then, you know, kind of in, in the, that interim period, not only the signs of packaging the clip-ons, but really looking at that testing of, of what's going on at point of sale and how can we increase the, you know, whether it's turns, whether it's revenue per, per session, however we want to look at it. There's some really low-hanging fruit there to, to come up with some new ideas to help those, what we call the street team here. And then the, the conversation around, you know, the ethic, ethically shameless um, integration process of, Gosh, how, how aggressive can I really get? And then knowing the mat- mathematic drivers behind the business, reevaluating that, and and seeing how how aggressive I can get on some of those partnerships. And then, as Jay was making mention, the newsletters, the magazines, the seminars from back in that point in his life, and saying, "Well, gosh, I, I have ten things I wrote down quickly that are are those things that I have access to now that I can go out and create partnerships with in in pretty short order, or at least begin the conversation 
while simultaneously hiring the person, just as Jade made mention of, right? Let's give it, let's give an individual internally a, a healthy salary or, or draw or whatever it ends up being to be the person who go out and, and drive this because really that's why I did the web hosting company when I came on board. I just did my own version before I knew who Jay was of something very comparable. I just figured out how to add, add success to other people and created partnerships and it worked pretty well. So those are some of the really, really quick things. But again, I pages and pages and pages of notes. <laughs> incredibly beneficial for me. All right. Well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure having you on. We're going to, we'll reach out afterwards and we'll do a, a touch base. But one, one thing that we also um, would like to do, if, you're, if you'd like to be back on in six months, 12 months, is do a check-in and see where you're at. I mean, at, this, at the pace you're going, you might be a quarter billion dollar company in six months, but it'd be cool to see which of these things you implement and you execute because it's only valuable if you do actually execute on these things. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks for having me. We'd be honored to come back in the next six months. And those things that I made mention of, I can absolutely guarantee they will be implemented before I jump back on in six months. All right. We'll hold you accountable. Perfect. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you find this show helpful, please hit the follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for the show. So more people can find the optimized podcast organically. If you'd like to be on the show, we have an open invite to anyone who wants their challenges solved. If you want to get in the hot seat, you can submit your business right now at theoptimizedpodcast.com. If we think you're a good fit, we'll get you on the show. If you have any questions or recommendation, drop us a comment right here, wherever you're listening to your podcast. We'd love to hear from you. See you on the next episode.